Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is somebody who's quoted as having said, it's becoming refreshingly clear that living well doesn't mean eradicating our wounds and vulnerabilities. Instead, it's understanding that they actually complete us. She runs a media company in which she highlights the experience of patients with chronic illness and how they have dealt with life since the diagnosis. An extraordinarily gifted artist and communicator, my guest on the podcast today is Kimberly Warner. Kimberly Warner, I'm delighted to be interviewing you today. I was very moved by the videos that I saw at the time that it was suggested that you join our show. The site is called unfixedmedia.com and you are the founder, creator, the director, head chef and bottle washer of that site. Is that correct? Yes, all of those, all of the above. I wanted to explore a little bit what the site is about. But before we do that, tell us a bit about yourself. I understand that you have a chronic illness, a long-term illness. What is that illness and, and how did that unfold for you? Yes, I'm. Um, first of all, I'm so delighted to speak with you. I just love your podcast and have enjoyed listening to all of your guests. So thank you for sharing some time with me here and for all that you do. I really, I grew up with a, a father who was a heart surgeon and he was very dedicated in the 1980s in a Midwestern hospital um, to bringing biofeedback, stress management, all these sort of quote unquote new ideas <laughs> to cardiac care. and. It was a challenge for him. So he would be absolutely over the moon delighted to discover minds like yours and teams like yours that are trying to change healthcare for the better. He was killed in a car accident when I was 18. So he didn't get to see where healthcare was, was headed. I have a condition called mal de debarkment syndrome, and that's accompanied by vestibular migraines. I developed these symptoms six years ago. And when they hit, they hit really hard. And it's still it's still challenging to talk about because I don't know if you've heard of the term medical trauma, but this was sort of enduring somatic threat that that never went away. It's a consistent 24-7 experience of rocking, bobbing, swaying. And while I've adapted to it, it's like I said, it's been six years, I still, in the early stages, it was so disorienting and traumatizing and just uh, arresting that constant sensation that I was going to fall over or that I was about to pass out or the, the floor was going to drop out from underneath me. And, and so I became a little bit of a, a prisoner in my own body. So it was it was a scary experience and very isolating. So I ended up chasing every cure <laughs> under the sun. You know, I the eye doctor said it was my eyes, the ear doctor said it was my ears, the neurologist said it was my brain, the endocrinologist said it was my hormones, you know the story. I everybody had an answer, but nobody had a solution. And I, the neurologist was sort of my last ditch effort. It took me about five months to even get into him. He was a um, dizzy specialist. And 
after running every test in the book and two days of vestibular labs, he ended up kind of, well, he shrugged his shoulders and he said, <laughs> he said, the body fixes itself and the doctors take the, the credit for it. And I, I said, is that it? <laughs> because I really need, I need more than that. And he didn't have anything more for me. He said that we can try do medical med trials, but you're not going to like the the side effects of these drugs. And I had already had some pretty scary experiences with medicines. And I, I just, I refuse. I was, I'm also a very stubborn person. So I refuse to believe that there wasn't an answer. In all of that searching to fix myself, I also lost myself. And so that is what ended up eventually stopping the whole chase, stopping the desire to fix myself, stopping even pursuing treatments for a long time because I needed to just learn how to live well with what I had. My identity had prior to that point been a thousand percent wrapped up in living fixed instead of living well. And I didn't know what that looked like. So that was the beginning of a different journey for me. Thank you for sharing that. And it's obvious to, from hearing you speak that you were very fond of your dad. And I'm so sorry to hear what happened to him. And I'm also so sorry that you have this illness. For a lot of people, when this happens, life seems to just fall apart and they feel that's the end. There's nothing more I can do. I'm not going to contribute anything more. But for you, it seemed to start something quite different. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, it didn't happen right away. <laughs> I did go through about two years of completely isolating myself. I was unable to leave the home. My, I even moved in with my mom for seven months. My husband had to work full time and I, I needed care. So I, it didn't, I didn't come to that easily. And I have been a type A fixer-upper there's a you know there's a solution for everything person my whole life so the deep surrender was something that i would say it happened out of necessity because i had to find a place of comfort within myself that could coexist with the discomfort if that makes any sense because the discomfort was never going away it didn't go away when i laid down to go to sleep it didn't go away when i was eating it just like this thing is never going to leave me alone. <laughs> you know, so I really had to open up to the possibility of finding peace within the storm. And I remember actually, I'm not religious, but my husband grew up very strict Baptist Christian. And he was at a thrift store and found this painting of a a ship at sea. It was just looked this wild um, storm, kind of a maelstrom. And the ship just looked like it was about to be overtaken by a, a wave. And I don't know, it was a couple bucks. So he picked it up and brought it home. And he told me a story from the Bible about Christ in the middle of a storm on a boat with all of his disciples and he Christ was sleeping in the middle of the storm. He was on the bow of the boat and he was just resting really peacefully. And all the disciples were just <laughs> in, a, in a panic, worried about the, the boat capsizing. And I, I used that image as a North Star. I guess the other term is like the, the peace that passeth understanding. And I thought, I, 
I'm not religious, but this is an allegory that I need to try to understand how to find the peace within the storm. That's very well said. And you're right. When something comes uh, like a wave over the bow and basically puts the ship on the rocks, you think, have I got it in me to do anything? But I want to offer you a quote that you yourself wrote, which I'd love you to explore with me. And the quote goes like this. I grew up believing that our strength comes from the parts of ourselves that are shiny and polished. Western culture, Hollywood character arcs, and pop culture often tells us this is true, presenting ourselves to the world with a bow on our heads and a scripted and clever narrative in our hands. Then we are of service. Then we are worthy of this world. But it's becoming refreshingly clear that living well doesn't mean eradicating our wounds and vulnerabilities. Instead, it's understanding that they actually complete us. I love that quote. Tell me more about what you were thinking there. I wanted that to be me, the shiny bow on my head. And I wanted to be able to be the person that could succeed with all of my endeavors. And for whatever reason, we all come in with our own journeys. But that clearly has not been my story. And I think my mother did a really good job at demonstrating that for her, presenting herself in the world through her strength was something that that worked. And people looked up to her in the community. She also was in a, a wellness practice. She was a psychotherapist. And, and so I, I sort of um, mirrored myself off of that and, and also believed that my imperfections, there wasn't room for them. The vulnerabilities were something to put away and or deal with on your own. And when you have a chronic illness, that belief system can be really, really isolating. And there even, I'll go back, there's a, a Carolyn Mace. It was a, I, don't, I think she's still alive, but she's, she wrote some books about this term she coined woundology, where people would connect through their wounds. And in her terms, this was sort of a negative thing that, you know, you tell me about my, your pain, I'll tell me about my pain and we'll connect there. And, and I was young when I started reading Carolyn Mace's books, our, our bookshelves at the house were full of new age books. <laughs> and I'm, in my teenager brain, I maybe misinterpreted some of her, her theories, but this one, this term woundology really scared me like, oh, I'm not supposed to connect with people through my suffering. I'm only supposed to um, serve through, through my wholeness. So I worked really hard to try to figure out how to bring my, my wholeness in the way that I understood it into the world. And it, it didn't really occur to me that all of the, the riches and all of the, the empathy and the compassion and the connection to my humanity and to others' humanity was actually going to come through my brokenness and my willingness to share that with others. What you say makes so much sense and is so enlightening in the sense that when we as physicians are meeting patients, we see them at, at their most broken. We see them at, at, at the height of their suffering. And what you're saying is that it's that point, it's at that point that they have the most to offer in the sense of walking in that dark place and finding something of value. 
And you've done that with so many people in, in the unfixed media presentations that you offer. Can you tell us something about some of the people that you've met who've experienced the same thing? Oh my gosh, there's, there's so many of them. We started with 20. I actually interviewed probably 50, planning on only having a few subjects for the, the original vision of the Unfixed Project, was, which, which was a feature documentary film. But after interviewing all these people, I realized there's just too many really, really important stories that need to be told. And here's this term that maybe you've heard of before, inspiration porn. (laughs) I really wanted to be careful that I wasn't selecting these humans so that they could be inspiration and inspiration for the world. Yes, they are. Their lives are. But that's not the purpose of representing their voices. Because if we look at people with disability and people with chronic illness as only an inspiration for others, then we're also saying that their worth is coming from that, if that makes any sense. So for me, I started with your story is worth hearing because it exists. You don't have to have a shiny bow on your head or you don't have to have all the conclusions or all the answers to your chronic illness. Or you don't have to even, you know, have all the the steps to 10 steps to positive thinking away your chronic illness. You just exist. And and so I started to fall in love with these subjects. <laughs> and and I think in the falling in love with them, I was really doing therapy on myself because I was what I was trying to do is fall in love with all of these messy, broken parts of myself. Elizabeth Jameson is an incredible woman in her 60s. She was a former attorney and became she developed multiple sclerosis and was unable to continue her practice as an attorney so she became an artist and really wanted to explore her MRIs and the the fear of of looking at these black and white images that depicted you know these sclerotic parts of her brain and and the horror and the medical trauma of that so she started to add color to them and and really as an opportunity to explore the, a dial, dialogue with other patients to help them see their diagnoses in a different light. And then she just wasn't able to use her hands anymore. The disease progressed. And so she went from an attorney to an artist, and now she's a writer. And, um, and well, and she became a public speaker, but she's starting to lose her voice. So the public speaking is steps back a little bit more and now she's doing more writing and she's been published in the New York Times and she's just an extraordinary woman who never never stops, <laughs> never gives up. And her north star is finding a sense of purpose and I cannot tell you how many other members, other subjects in this film in this unfixed media project also have that North Star, the the North Star of needing to find a sense of purpose through their condition. And it doesn't have to be a huge purpose. It doesn't mean you have to start an organization or save the world. The purpose could be to love myself every single day that I wake up with this. Elizabeth, one of her purposes right now that in our last video, she, she talked about how she really wants to learn how to treat MS as her best friend. And she grew up sort of lonely and didn't get the hugs and the kisses that she wanted. So 
she wants to have MS be that best friend that she never had. And it's just so dear. And it, it, you know, we don't all have to have these even chronic illnesses to understand how that kind of dialogue with ourselves can be healing, even if it doesn't heal the cells of our brain. I love the way you frame that. And I love the term inspiration porn because I know what you're saying and that it becomes so obvious when you hear it put in that way. But what I love especially about your work, Kimberly, is that you use video because when you use video, you're actually seeing the person exactly as they are in all of their suffering. You can see that this person has physical issue makes you realize that this is not a fun story. This is somebody who is suffering. And yet through that suffering, as you say, you see them almost morph into something else. And it's it's not just inspiration. It's, it's awe of the human spirit and how the human spirit can survive even in the darkest of times. Yeah. Moyes, I just heard a study that talks about the use of video with veterans. And this was done in Madison, Wisconsin. And I don't remember how many subjects were part of this study, but they took about, I think it was a 10 minute videos of the patients prior to going to visit their, having their first appointment with their primary care physician. And these, in these videos, they weren't doing their medical history. They were talking about themselves, their their family, their experiences in the war, anything that they wanted the physician to know about them before going in for their first appointment. And the patient outcomes and the physician burnout changed because of these videos. And I, I, it really stuck with me because I feel like that's something that's really missing right now in our, our patient-practitioner relationship is Our next video is called This One's For You, Doc. (laughs) And it's the the subjects are working on it right now. And one of the questions that I asked them to answer is, what is something that you want your primary physician to know about you that you never get to tell them? And you'd be surprised that I think I have about six videos in already. And every single one of them has said, I want them to know that I'm I'm a people pleaser and, and I'm and I sugarcoat things and I want my practitioner to be, to feel like they're, they're confidently following through with my treatment plan and that I'm confidently, you know, following through with that myself. And they, there's such a, an, a desire to please our practitioners and to look like everything is good that, and I do exactly the same thing. I am the good quote unquote good patient. And, and I certainly probably have some daddy issues in there too that, you know, I, I want them to like me. And it's something that is definitely a hindrance to getting the proper care because I know I present myself in the best way I possibly can. So they don't think I'm, you know, one of those patients. And anyway, I, so videos, I went back to this idea of what this hospital in Madison, Wisconsin did. And I think it's a really fascinating way to try to round out this patient's story so that practitioners can have a better understanding and, and empathy for, for who's walking into their, their clinic. That resonates loudly. And we all recognize as physicians that we 
know increasingly less about our patients because we're so busy doing the admin that's required to keep the show on the road, as it were. And yeah, people pleasers potentially could find themselves in trouble because the doctors were happy to go along with that because it makes the day go by faster. And I remember when I was training, we used to call, uh, there, was a, there was a list of titles for patients who were difficult because we didn't know enough about them. Frequent attender, fat folder patient, heart sink patient. And nobody wanted to be one of those. And yet, the reason that they, these people became those patients is because no one took the time to get to know them in all of their imperfection. Wow. That's, that's a very validating. Because you know those patients that have those feelings and, and are presenting themselves in a more polished way are also picking up on those other more subtle stereotypes that, oh, this doctor is, you know, we already know before we walk in if that person is going to be really willing to listen to us. And, and I mean, for myself, I I really, I'm starting to explore this term medical trauma. And, and I know that there's a lot of that thrown around lately of, especially the experiences that we have in hospitals and ICUs. And, um, but I'm talking about the actual the somatic, the I actually just read about it. It's called an EST, and it's a, a branch off of PTSD, and it's enduring somatic threat. And it's the that fear of living in a body that you don't know what's going to happen next. How is it going to react to this medication? And am, am I going to pass out? I'm one of those people that have passed out so many times in my life. And sometimes I've been able to tell why but other times I haven't. And so these are types of things that get dismissed often. And in my mind, it could be at the very root of what's even going on with some of the the heightened vestibular disorders that I have now. But when I tell a doctor that I've passed out a lot, they, you know, they kind of (laughs) just shrug their shoulder. Oh, (laughs) one of those patients. And it's hard to find my voice and to work myself back up into the position of going, no, let's really look at this. Let's, let's investigate this instead of shrugging it off, which is, is what I do and, and still do to this day. If I could share something with you in that in the time that certainly I've been doing this work of forging the partnership between patients and practitioners, as a group, we've come to the belief that what really matters in healthcare, what really matters to patients, doesn't cost anything. So you can do this in whatever system that you're working in, whether it's a system that's high pressure or whether it's a system that's a bit more relaxed and you've got, you know, half an hour, if if you call that relaxed, half hour to speak with your patients. What do you think about that? Well, I absolutely, I'm sure you've heard of, or maybe even interviewed Rachel Naomi Remen and some of her work. She, as a physician, said that she may not be able to cure everything and certainly hasn't been able to cure everything in her practice, but that never stopped her from feeling like she could be a healing presence to people. And that takes a moment of time, a moment of just being present with that patient and listening and not just listening from your head and taking proper notes, but really connecting. And and I do feel like there's a, a healing that's happening even with the subjects in my f- 
film and the, and the media project is that they, of, of course, we're not fixing each other, but there is such a, a, a deep listening that's happening with one another. And sometimes when they send me a video, I, I, I may only have a couple of minutes to reflect on that in that moment, but to send them a text and say, wow, I really heard that. Uh, when they do that back to me, because I send them my responses, it feels so healing and, and it doesn't take away the symptoms. So I, I'm just fascinated by the idea that we can be healed and broken at the exact same moment. <laughs> I'd love to know where to from here for you, Kimberly, in the sense that you've, you've got this project called the Un- Unfixed Media. How is that developing and what can we expect in the future? Well, the project that I'm, so I have the docu-series and we have 12 videos that we did last year and we're producing six more this year. And what I'm really, really hoping is to start sharing this within medical school curriculums. And this idea started because I actually just, I, about a month ago, received an email from a retired physician who said, she said, I want students, medical students, to cry the way I do when I watch these videos. And that, that's pretty much a literal quote that she said. And and she said, please call me, let's talk. And I wouldn't be so presumptuous to imagine that this is something that could actually be integrated into a, a, a traditional medical school curriculum. But I did also just read recently that over 80 medical schools in the U.S. now have a narrative medicine even if I don't know if it's just a one day sort of elective, but it's it's part of the program. And I feel like there are opportunities for students to start to work their heart muscles along with their brains a little bit and and hear these patient stories and and cry a little and and be moved by their journeys. And again, this is just chronic illness and terminal illness that I'm working with, which I think is probably going to only grow in proportions over the years with the the numbers of people that have chronic illness. I think it's six out of 10 Americans now have some form of chronic illness. So these are the ones that doctors are going, oh no, here's another one of these. So if we could help medical students understand that they can have a healing presence, even if they don't have the magic bullet for them. That it's okay to say, I don't know, that I don't have the answers for you, that they they can engage a mental health worker with these patients. If I had had, if my neurologist had said, hey, I don't have the answers for you, but if you would like, I could refer you to a mental health practitioner that works specifically with chronic conditions. That would have saved me so much time and energy and money and agony, uh, engaging family members and caregivers in the conversation so they can understand what it's like for somebody to not be able to walk away from a physician's office with the, with the, the formula, the fix it perfect amen, hail Mary formula. And so all of these things, I think could potentially be part of a dialogue within the medical schools. And so that's my long-winded way of saying my I'm doing a push in that direction this year to try to grow that kind of conversation. And uh, alongside that, I'm continuing to do an unfixed podcast. So we have conversations that are 
outside of the, the 20 subjects that I've been working with. And Elizabeth, actually, the woman that I was just speaking about earlier with multiple sclerosis, is also doing a, I'm helping her produce a show that's going to be real conversations about MS and kind of a no, no specialists, no experts, no advice, just real talk and really getting down and dirty with some of the things that maybe some people don't want to talk about. So there are so, the sky is the limit with where I can take unfixed. And it's so clear that there are so many of us that want to know how to live well, even though we don't always feel well. <laughs> and it's, it's been, it's a very, it's, it's necessary. And as I told you before we started this interview, it's also very personally therapeutic for me. I believe you are a visionary in what you're saying there. At the start of this conversation, you said that your dad, who was a physician, would have been so pleased that there are other physicians who welcome that conversation with patients. I believe in the next generation, we will be talking about patients in that way and saying, isn't it fantastic that there are patients who are willing to share so much of themselves and who see that there is something that would be of help to physicians in talking about the suffering that they are enduring. As a medical educator, I remember years ago being told, even as a student, listen to the patient, the patient will tell you the diagnosis. We paid lip service to that. We're now beginning to see a world where patients know far more than we do and are able to really help us walk that journey with them. And in fact, it's so much more rewarding. As you say in that paper that you quoted, Physician burnout was improved because of that connection with the patient. Kimberly Warner, you are absolutely an inspiration, and what you're doing is so incredibly important. Please continue. We will make sure that all of your links are in the show notes to this podcast. And I very much hope that we will continue the connection in the years to come. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That means so much to me. And I, very dear of you to bring my father into that that last bit as well. I I do even after he died. I wanted to keep him alive somehow, and I ended up going start go, doing pre med and doing my MCATs and starting the medical school path and then transferring over. And I I was determined to keep him alive, even though that wasn't my path. And I, I was convinced even while I was taking my MCATs, I remember that okay, well, I, I want to go to medical school, but not so I can practice, but so I can be an educator in high school. And people thought, you're nuts because you're never going to be able to pay off your student loans. But that was my mission. And it feels like somehow in a very roundabout way with a lot of pain and suffering along the way, I think I found what I originally wanted to do with medicine. And so you're right. I think, I think my dad would be happy. I'm sure he would. Thank you, Kimberly. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>